Today it's the 28th of January 2018. It's Sunday. And today in this talk, I will highlight another aspect that relates to our metta meditation practice. It is about understanding that on a very basic level, we, as human beings, are not different from each other. To recognize our shared humanity is a great help for the cultivation of kindness or unconditional love. In my talk three days ago, I mentioned the appeal of a Burmese Catholic cardinal in relation to this ongoing conflict with the Rohingyas. He had said that we should see every person as our brother and sister in humanity, regardless of race, ethnicity, or religion. And many other religious leaders say the same, namely that we human beings are like brothers and sisters, or that we should regard each other as brothers and sisters. Despite the many differences that there are, there is a common ground. We are human beings with the same hopes and fears. We are human beings with the same wish for a happy and good life. Or we are human beings with the same wish for being free from pain, free from problems, misery, and suffering. So on this basic level, we as human beings are not different from each other. In the same way as we want our siblings to be happy and well, we should consider each other as our siblings and wish them to be happy, to be well, to have a good life. When I learned Burmese many years ago, I made a very, very interesting discovery. Unlike in English or German, in the Burmese language, the word you, see, or do is not used very often. It does exist, but when we address a person, any person, one uses always a very specific word. Words like auntie, uncle, brother, sister, grandmother, grandfather. And it always relates to how we relate or the relationship to this other person. 
in regard to our age. So, for example, if I address a person who is about my age, maybe a bit older, so then I would address him as brother. And the Burmese has specific words for elder brother or younger brother. So then I would address this man as elder brother, Aku. If he is a bit younger, then I would address him as younger brother. Same in regard to women. A woman, even a, a stranger, a woman I've never met, who is about my age, maybe a bit older, I would address as elder, elder sister or younger sister, if she's a bit younger. If I want to address a person who is very young, who could be my daughter or my son, then I would address that young girl as Dami, daughter or son. Or an elderly person who could be my grandmother, I would address as Apua, grandmother. Or persons around the age of my parents, my aunts and uncles, then I would address such a person as auntie or uncle. And as I said, this even applies to strangers, person we have never met in our life. But by addressing them like this, immediately they become part of my family. <laughs> and so basically every human being in this world is part of my family. So that was very interesting for me. In the beginning, a bit strange. <laughs> I was always a bit embarrassed to address any person as uncle, <laughs> who could be my uncle. But that's the way it is here in Burma. So we should acknowledge that we are simply human beings with the same basic wishes, hopes, and fears. This is what we all share. In this way, we can acknowledge our shared humanity. The Metta Sutta is one of the most well-known suttas, discourses of the Buddha. And here in Burma, the Metta Sutta is recited at almost every big or important ceremony. And not only that, in all the monasteries, nunneries, and even in the houses of lay people, it is recited on a daily basis. And I'm sure that right now, in this moment, the Metta Sutta is recited somewhere here in Burma, somewhere around the world. So today 
I want to speak about three verses of the Metta Sutta. In these verses, the Buddha laid out the foundation for the actual development of Metta, the foundation for our Metta meditation practice. The gist of the verses 4 and 5 is, may all beings without exception be happy. Last night we have recited the Metta Sutta. So there it says, whatever living being there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. And then verse 6, it says, just as a mother loves her only child, so should we love, cherish all living beings. And in our translation, it says, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So let's go back to the verses 4 and 5. What is needed to have a benevolent attitude towards all living beings? So instead of seeing the differences, we should see what we have in common. To see our shared humanity and to see that all forms of life are precious and based on the same feelings, based on the same hopes and fears. And verse number six encourages us to see all beings as our own child. So to extend the same kindness, to extend the same love to all beings as we extend our love, our kindness to our child. Those of you who are mothers, you know directly and personally of what the Buddha speaks. There is no doubt that the love of a mother for her child is boundless and unconditional. Of course, there are exceptions. We have heard, we know uh, that some mothers uh, do very cruel things to their children. But usually a mother, for example, gets up at night to feed her child. She comforts a frightened kid 
she facilitates a good education, and so on. But of course, also fathers have a strong bond to their children. They also love their kids. They also care for the welfare, well-being of their children. And then, of course, also aunties and uncles or neighbors, they extend their kindness, their care, their love to children. It is very natural. It's in the nature that a mother feels love, kindness for her child. For example, she cares for her baby during that period of infancy when the baby is utterly dependent on the mother, dependent uh, for nourishment, for protection, and dependent on emotional stability. It's almost a biological imperative to favor the survival of the next generation. And even if that would mean to give up one's own life. As I just mentioned, it says in the Metta Sutta, even as a mother protects with her life her only child, or there are other translations, for example, just as a mother would protect her only child by risking her own life. So with this simile, the Buddha encouraged us to imagine what it feels like to love someone dearly. But to love dearly not in the model of romantic love, but in the broader context of love that is entirely giving, love that does not expect anything in return. The Buddha points to a selfless love, to an unconditional love, or a boundless love that cares simply but very powerfully for the well-being of the other. So with this image of this kind of unconditional and boundless love or kindness, we can access the quality of metta. This is the starting point. And then the Buddha had said, and likewise, with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So then the next step is to broaden this felt sense of metta, broaden it to other humans, broaden it to other living beings. So we must understand that this benevolent attitude goes beyond the person we love so dearly. We must extend this kindness 
this unconditional love first to other human beings and eventually to every living being that exists somewhere in this universe or in other universes. And the Buddha said very clearly that the heart, the mind, is capable of cultivating benevolence and unconditional love for every living being. He said that all of us have the ability to overcome the limitations of a closed heart, that is, to overcome the limitations of prejudice, of anger, or attachment. So if the heart, if the mind, is able of such a benevolent state, why do we limit it? Why do we, why do we set limits by personal likes and dislikes? Why do we set limits by race or nationality or sexual orientation or the color of the skin? At the core of this limitation is this sense of me and others. This strong sense of a me or the ego or myself that needs to be looked after first of all. So in this context of identifying with a particular nation, we have a very famous example. Mr. Trump with his America first. <laughs> so there is a strong sense of ego and myself that feels threatened by others, threatened by other nations. And based on this strong sense of me, the ego tries everything to make myself happy. I want to be happy. I need this to be happy. And to be happy, others may stand in the way of getting my happiness. However, it is exactly the self-centered view that is the cause for our unhappiness. So how can we be really happy when we harm others, when others are not happy? So this is why the Buddha encourages us to regard and love other living beings the way we love and um, are kind to our own child. We surely do not harm our child. And when our child is happy, we are happy as well. 
So instead of seeing the differences, we should see what we have in common, what we have in common with other living beings. So we should contemplate the fact that other people, other living beings, have the same basic desires and hopes, namely to be happy and to avoid pain and suffering. So for the sake of simplicity, I will limit the scope uh, of this talk to human beings. Otherwise, it becomes a bit complicated when I always have to mention human beings and other living beings. In South Africa, there is the notion of Ubuntu. And Ubuntu means that we are human beings in dependence on one another. This points to our shared humanity, to our shared humanness. We share so much with each other. And as I said, of course, there are also differences. But if we can recognize that we share our humanity, that we share our being human, then we already feel much closer to each other. And here is a story from South Africa that illustrates this sense of Ubuntu and the fact that we can only be happy if others are happy as well. And an, an anthropologist offered a new game to the children of the Xhosa tribe in South Africa. Maybe my pronunciation of this tribe is not entirely correct. So he put a basket filled with fruits near a tree, and he told the children that the one who was first to grab the basket could have it and eat the fruit. And when he gave the signal to start run, the children took each other by the hands and ran together. Then they sat down around the basket, eating and sharing the sweet fruits. When the anthropologists asked the kids why they did what they did and why nobody ran to grab the basket themselves, they said, Ubuntu, how can one of us be happy when all the others are not happy? So these children, most likely the people of this tribe, they clearly recognize that their happiness is dependent on the happiness of others. We, as human beings, have the tendency to put other people 
into different boxes. So we have people we love, people we hate, people we respect, people we envy, people with whom we want to be together, people we try to avoid, people who are inspiring, people who are boring, and so on. So these boxes, setting up these boundaries, they actually alienate us from others. They create a huge gap. But with the practice of loving-kindness, we try to overcome these boundaries. We try to develop the same benevolent attitude towards all human beings. So therefore, it is very helpful to repeatedly reflect on our shared humanness, to reflect on our shared values, hopes, and fears. Sometimes it can take quite a long time to clearly see that others are actually not different from us, to to see that they really share the same hopes and fears, to clearly see that they are human beings like me. We stay a bit in South Africa, and you may know that Nelson Mandela, he spent 27 years in prison. Some people were saying that these 27 years in prison were a complete waste of time for Nelson Mandela. But the Archbishop Desmond Tutu said that these 27 years were not a waste of time. He said, Many may be surprised when I say that these 27 years were necessary. They were necessary to remove the slag. Through the suffering in prison, he became more generous and he was able to listen to the other side. He discovered that those he considered to be his enemies were human beings like himself, with the same fears and expectations. The Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama are among the most open-minded religious leaders in the world. In 2015, on the occasion of the 80th birthday of the Dalai Lama, the two men, they were friends, they are friends, they spent one week together reflecting on the topic of joy. 
and all their thoughts and reflections on joy were collected and made into a book. The title of the book is The Book of Joy. And it is a very touching, a very inspiring book because the author of the book not only uh, describes, described what these two men were saying in regard to the topic of joy, but the author also described how these two elderly men were interacting with each other. For example, when the Dalai Lamas talked about the destruction of most of the monasteries in Tibet, then Desmond Tutu took the Dalai Lama's hand and held it very softly. Or at other times, they teased each other and they had a good laughter together. And like a red thread running through this week, these two men stressed time and again that people should overcome their limiting categories and that people should try to develop love and compassion for all human beings alike. But unfortunately, our narrow-minded intellect constructs divisions and barriers, and it does so to protect and to strengthen the sense of self. This sense of self, or the sense of me, sense of ego, is always trying to attain its own selfish goals. It's about me, me, me. And in this way, most of the other people stand in the way of my happiness, and therefore they become my rivals, they become my enemies. Of course, human beings do act in unskillful and harmful ways. We cannot deny this. It's a fact. But even though we should never reduce another person just to that unskillful or harmful behavior, behind or beyond this unwholesome action, there is a human being who shares the same basic nature, namely wanting happiness and not wanting suffering. And so with the practice of loving-kindness, metta-meditation, we try to connect to other people on this basic level, to connect with the other person on the level of the heart. Because on this level, we are not different from each other. The Panchen Lama, or the first Panchen Lama, 
was a teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He lived in the 14th, 15th century. And he had expressed this with these words. As, as far as suffering is concerned, I do not wish the least. As for happiness, I am never satisfied. In this respect, there is no difference between the others and me. A few days ago, in an interview, one yogi, one meditator, related a following experience. She had a thought of sharing her own thermos with another yogi who was sick. But then the first reaction to this thought was, oh no, I need this. I need my thermos with the hot water. But immediately after that thought, there arose another thought, which was, well, what's the difference between me and her? So this was the soft meta-mind that reminded her that there is actually no difference. Or Pema Chodron says something um, similar. She is a Western nun ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and she had set up a monastery, Gampo Abbey, in Nova Scotia. So she said, compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. And when she uses the word compassion, we can understand it in the sense of compassion as a manifestation of metta in the face of suffering. So compassion, metta, becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. Now we go back to the Metta Sutta, to these verses 4 and 5. In these verses, the Buddha mentions all living beings for whom we should cultivate loving-kindness. And so he uses a number of adjectives to kind of encompass the whole range of living beings. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, then the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Although the final scope is to radiate loving-kindness to all living beings, 
wherever they may be. It's impossible to really imagine all living beings, at least for me. It's impossible. I cannot do it. And I assume for most people it's also not possible. It's just beyond the range of our imagination or knowledge. But when the Buddha used all these different adjectives, they are like an invitation to expand our heart and mind to the living beings that exist somewhere, somehow. So we should also include living beings that are beyond or outside of our direct and personal experience, allowing the possibility that there are other beings around. So when the Buddha says, whether these beings are weak or strong. So what is a weak being? Maybe uh, it's a worm or a feeble old grandmother or babies, whether they are human or animal babies, they are usually considered to be weak and vulnerable. And so usually it is not so difficult to cultivate kindness, love for beings who are helpless or vulnerable. And then what is a strong living being? Maybe first we think of an elephant or a lion, an eagle or a bull. Or maybe it could also refer to a strong muscular man or maybe to a strong-minded woman. Strong may also uh, mean or refer to a powerful political leader or maybe to a persevering activist who uh, tries to protect the tropical forests. Then we have the adjectives of beings who are great or the mighty or medium, short or small. So with these adjectives, the Buddha invites us to envision living beings of different shapes, of different sizes. Maybe a giraffe or a mayfly, a rhino or a dog, a tall woman or a newborn baby. Then we have the categories of the living beings that are seen or unseen or visible and invisible. And so this takes into account that we do not see every living being with our physical eyes. 
So besides the beings that we can see with our eyes, human beings, animals, there are beings we cannot see because we cannot see them because they are so small. Maybe we need a microscope to see them. Or some beings are simply so far away that we cannot see them. But there are also these beings who are invisible to our regular eyes. But these kinds of beings, they can be seen with either a special sensitivity or with powerful states of mind, such uh, when developing the jhanas. And so these are beings like devas or angels, ghosts, demons, or hell beings. Then we have the descriptions, beings living near and far away. So people or animal who live in our vicinity or near us, yes, we can see them. We see them maybe every day, every now and again. Maybe people of our family, our friends, our neighbors, or the lady at the checkout counter, or the postman, or the neighbor's cat. And then we can also think of the other side of the world. So for example, uh, think of people, beings in New Zealand, or the Pacific Islands, or beings in Europe. Because also, in these places, there are cats, there are um, uh, postmen, there are dogs and birds. And then we have beings, those born and to be born. So far, all these descriptions of various living beings related to beings in space. And with this, we extend our meta to living beings in time. We cannot only develop loving kindness to beings who coexist with us somewhere in this universe, but we can extend this benevolent attitude to beings who will be born, beings who do not exist right now, but who may exist maybe tomorrow or in a couple of months or next year. So this exercise of imagining all living beings or extending our loving kindness to all living beings, it can be quite, quite mind-boggling. And as I've said, for most people, it's impossible to individually imagine every living being. 
So we need to surrender to the attempt of trying to imagining each individual creature. But what we can do is instead shift uh, our focus to the, to the feeling of benevolence itself. Well, it's not really a feeling in the uh, common sense as we use it in everyday language, but as we try to uh, explain, um, as we have tried to explain so far in our talks, this metta, loving kindness, is rather an attitude of the heart and the mind. It's a quality uh, inherent in the heart and mind. And then after all these different adjectives trying to encompass all living beings, then we come to the punchline, namely, may all beings be at ease or it could be translated, may all beings be happy. It's as simple as this, may all beings be happy. And this is like a refrain in the sutta. And as you know, in the actual metta meditation practice, this refrain is repeated uncountable number of times. Up to now, in this metta meditation retreat, how many times have you already repeated this metta wish? Well, there's no need to count it. <laughs> but many, many, many times. And it always boils down to may all beings be happy or you know, having individual persons as the object for our meta-meditation. May I be happy, or may my benefactor be happy. May my dear friend be happy. And this wish, as we always uh, stress again and again, must come from the depth of our heart. We should really, really wish the other to be happy and well. And you know, it doesn't matter what kind of happiness it may mean. Whatever happiness may mean for me or the other person. But this wish for the happiness of the other must be free of expectations and free from our own ideas what that happiness should consist of. Earlier in this talk, I talked about our shared humanity and how we should see others as human beings with the same basic wishes, wanting happiness, avoiding suffering. 
And the Buddha then went a step further and said that we should not only develop this benevolent attitude to other human beings, but to all living beings. And so we could call it our shared experience as living beings. Many astronauts, astronauts have talked about the moment, the moment when they saw the Earth from out in space, from the universe. So seeing the Earth as a blue, small ball in this infinite space, seeing the Earth without man-made boundaries. And this astronaut said that in that moment they recognized the unity of all life, the unity of all forms of life in this boundless space. Nowadays, even scientists have come to realize that our happiness, our well-being, is dependent on the well-being of others. So, for example, if the bees are dying, then we will not get any apples or mangoes anymore, unless the apple flowers or the mango flowers are hand-pollinated, as they already do in some parts of China and maybe other parts in the world. So we need happy and healthy bees for our well-being. But as I've already said, the deluded and self-centered me, heart and mind, sets up boundaries and limits to secure my happiness. But because the mind does not see, because the mind is deluded, it does not see that exactly these very boundaries are actually the cause for not being happy. The Buddha pointed out the fact that True happiness comes from an open heart that cherishes all beings equally. That's why he advised us to cultivate the heart, the mind that radiates boundless goodwill, boundless friendliness towards all living beings. And this is exactly what the practice of loving-kindness invites us to do. Although the object of our practice may change, like the persons um, change in our practice, but although these persons who are the object of our meditation, meta-meditation change, we should try to maintain this quality of loving-kindness. 
And so when our practice deepens, then we notice that we actually are able to go beyond the ordinary range of our benevolence. And these are the moments of maybe surprise, the moments of great awe. Wow, I really feel such goodness towards my difficult boss. Or, how amazing, I really feel kindness towards my difficult sister. So such moments are inspiring and they give us the energy, they give us the perseverance to continue with the practice. So these moments let us catch a glimpse of this noble and yet so simple state of heart and mind. The core message of the Metta Sutta points directly to one of the most sublime and powerful aspects of our human nature, namely the quality, the ability to be kind, the ability to be friendly, the ability to radiate boundless love, Ayakema was a German nun and beloved teacher. She died 21 years ago and she had said, to love that which is laughable is possible for anyone. It's easy. That is what all the romances, the movies and the novels are about. To love that which is lovable is not the spiritual path, but a worldly endeavor. The purpose of loving kindness is the purification of the heart. When Ayakema speaks of the purification of the heart, I understand it in the sense of purifying the heart from all its limiting boundaries. So as a spiritual practice, the practice of loving kindness leaves the worldly level and it becomes a sublime state of heart and mind. That's why Metta and the other Brahma-viharas are called the divine abidings. So, may we all continue with this noble and at time challenging practice until all the barriers have been torn down, until we see our shared humanity and until we see all forms of life deserve our metta, our love and kindness.
thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.